Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Now think for a minute about the people in your world. What do they think of your commitment to them? How would you rate your faithfulness? Does your loyalty ever waver? Do you have one person with whom your contract is non-negotiable? Once two friends were fighting together in a war. The combat was ferocious and many lives were being taken. When one of the two young soldiers was injured and could not get back to the trenches, the other went out to get him against his officer's orders. He returned, mortally wounded, and his friend, whom he had carried back, was dead. The officer looked at the dying soldier, shook his head, and said, It wasn't worth it. The young boy, overhearing the remark, smiled and said, But it was worth it, sir, because when I got to him, he said, Jim, I knew you'd come. Make the most of your relationships. Follow the advice of Benjamin Franklin. Be slow in choosing friends and be even slower in leaving them. It is here in the Archbishop's Corner where Archbishop Leonard Blair leads us to the knowledge that will help us make the most of our relationships. Yes, with one another and also with God. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for leading us into the Archbishop's Corner to show us the way into a closer relationship with God and with one another. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Let's talk about National Parents' Day, which is today. It's a day that we recognize outstanding parents, and we celebrate the teamwork in raising children, support the role of parental guidance in building strong, stable societies. Now, raising a child in a world that is constantly changing must be quite the challenge. Do you have any words of encouragement for those parents that might be listening into us today? Yes, well, you know, you always come up with all these national our international observance days, some of which I must admit are a little bit bizarre, Uh, you know, like National Eat Vanilla Ice Cream Day or something like that. (laughs) But this one about parents is uh, very, very uh, timely because I actually wrote uh, a little preview. My next article in the transcript is called Think Parent. Ah. And uh, I was uh, prompted to do it by a group uh, in my former diocese of uh, Toledo. That was their a kind of motto for an observance, think parent. And basically what that means is that we sometimes forget that the most important people that we need to support if we're talking about our future generation or about the health of our parishes and schools or our society are parents. Uh, You know, the church, uh, it's stated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that the parents are the first and primary educators of their children. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have the prime responsibility for this, a God-given responsibility and certainly the state uh, and society can hopefully help. And in some cases, the state has to intervene if parents you know, are abusive or something like that. But the, the, this is a sacred obligation of parents. Uh, and so if we want to um, uh, benefit our children, we have to, we have to help their parents to, to be good parents and uh, to support them in doing what needs to be done. So you're saying this is, uh, very much, has been very much on my mind as I wrote that article. If you look at the role of parents today, there are so many challenges to parents today to raise their children with good values and and to be there for them, one of which I would think is the the Internet. And there are so many avenues 
through the Internet that can challenge a parent's role today, it must be extremely difficult. Well, of course, a parent, a child's world is, if I can put it this way, invaded by all kinds of voices and all kinds of <clears throat> images and all kinds of activities that are, are far outside the home and have to do with larger cultural and social realities. And so, yes, but, you know, I think most young people still look to their parents, certainly, as the people who, uh, you know, they trust and who have the greatest influence on them. So we shouldn't think that it's hopeless, but I think parents have to probably be much more vigilant and much more proactive about their children uh, than maybe they used to be. I mean, you know, when you and I were kids, uh, we were in the neighborhood playing and we had our bike or our roller skates or whatever Mm -hmm. and uh, to the park. My gosh, we used to do things, go out and things. I think parents today are probably afraid to even let their kids do a lot of that stuff unless it's supervised because of the kinds of society in which we live, sadly. But, uh, you know, so it is a a matter of being vigilant and proactive. It's nice that we have a a day like National Parents Day to to support parents in their their challenge. Well, tomorrow we observe the feast day of St. Martha, a saint who is mentioned in three gospel passages, along with her brother Lazarus and her sister Mary. In the Gospel of Luke, Martha receives Jesus into her home, worries herself with serving him, a worry that her sister Mary, who sat beside the Lord's feet listening to him speak, doesn't share. Her complaint that her sister is not helping her serve draws a reply from the Lord who says to her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about many things. Mary has chosen the better part. It will not be taken from her. What is Jesus telling us today? What's the message here for you and I today? Well, I think Jesus is not dismissing the importance of fussing around in the kitchen and you have company, as he was company, and Mm -hmm. Martha was doing this. But he was saying that the the right balance in life, uh, really ultimately the more important thing is to be uh, with him attentively in prayer. The two are not mutually exclusive because people who work in the kitchen also have to pray and people who pray also have to work in the kitchen. Uh, But he was saying that... uh, you know, the, the, ultimately, the most important thing is to be in communion, in prayer, uh, listening to him. You use that word balance, and that's probably key for all of us, huh? To find that right balance that works. Absolutely, yes. This Thursday is the first day of August and the start of what will be your legacy month. This coming month is a time to realize how our actions affect others and the impact of our life choices can have on present and future generations. What do you think? How, how do you see your legacy at, at this point as the fifth Archbishop of, of the Archdiocese of Hartford, Archbishop? Oh, quite honestly, I don't think much about that. I, I only think of what my duty is and what I need to do <clears throat> to try to be a good Archbishop, uh, to be a good shepherd of souls. And, you know, quite honestly, especially in these troubled times for the Church, you know, um, I, I want to do... W- the right thing and and to, to faithfully fulfill promises of my priestly and episcopal ordination but i figure once you leave this life uh in the end quite honestly i only care what god thinks <laughs> yeah, after that yeah. i i don't i don't care what anybody i don't care if there's a picture to me or uh, some mention or if there isn't because ultimately when we leave this world the only thing that lasts and the only thing that's important is how we are in god's eyes and you don't do what you do in order to impress or to 
leave some type of a legacy on the archdiocese. You do what you do, as you mentioned, because you believe it's the right thing to do, and this is what the will of God is for you as Archbishop of Hartford. Well, certainly. Well, I mean, I, I hope that uh, I will have built up the faith of people and handed on faithfully uh, the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the Church. That's what a bishop's job is, to be a teacher of the faith. So I hope I will have done that, and as a result, uh, people will continue to believe and practice the faith and hand it on and bear witness to Christ in the world. It's a very challenging time to do that in right now, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there have been many challenging times in the history of the church. I laughingly say that, you know, if you die and get to heaven, you got to have something to talk about in the locker room, and <laughs> I'm going to have plenty to talk about. <laughs> well, let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis that is drawn from some of the Pope's writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you to comment with your own thoughts on what the Pope has said. This is taken from Pope Francis's general audience, delivered on June 11th of 2014, and it's called, Be Like a Child in the Embrace of the Holy Spirit. The Pope says, When the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts, we feel comfort and peace. We understand how small we are. We experience the feeling, a feeling so strongly recommended by Jesus in the Gospel, of placing all our cares and hopes in God and being embraced and sustained by his warmth and protection, just like a child with his dad. This is what the Holy Spirit does to our hearts. It makes us feel like children in the arms of our dad. In this way, we understand how fear of the Lord can become docility, gratitude, and praise, and how it fills our hearts with hope. Archbishop, your thoughts? Yes, well, a couple. Um, It's interesting, you know, in our uh, novena prayer for Pentecost, uh, we pray for the gift of fear of the Lord. And people today sometimes say, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't fear God. Love has replaced uh, fear. And of course, even St. John in one of his, his epistles say, says that perfect love casts out fear. But like so many things in Scripture, the context of, of how it's presented can give different nuances to it. And certainly what St. John is, says is true in the sense of servile fear or kind of a terror. Yes, in that sense, perfect love casts out that kind of fear. Mm-hmm. But the Old Testament and the New Uh, also makes a lot of reference to fear of the Lord in a different sense, in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, a gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That that means that we have this uh, uh, basic fundamental reverence for God and for his will, that God is God and we are his creatures, and that God is is good and true and just. And therefore, we we have to have a healthy uh, sense of that kind of reverential fear so that we will be motivated to to um, strive always to do God's holy will. So the Holy Spirit, uh, as the Pope says here, fear of the Lord can become docility, gratitude, and praise, and how it fills our hearts with hope. That's the kind of fear of the Lord of which the scriptures speak. And, of course, the other thing, too, uh, this sense of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said that if we have the Holy Spirit within our hearts, he will tell us what to say when we're dragged before kings and governors on on Christ's account, that the Holy Spirit will give us the gracious words that we need. And so we have to have that trust, but we also have to, to pray and be people of faith that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, and we have to ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be poured into our hearts and minds and souls. How very comforting, the, as the Pope says here, the Holy Spirit does to our hearts. It makes us feel like children in the arms of our dad. A very comforting thought, huh? You know, just today, as a matter of fact, I happen to note, as we're recording this, 
I noticed a piece in the Catholic news somewhere, the story of um, a man in France, a Catholic, who apparently was present at the Mass in one of these small churches where the priest who was celebrating Mass was attacked and knifed to death right at the altar. Uh. I remember that was big news some time ago. But this man in the story says that he fell to the ground uh, in the church, uh, kind of playing dead, uh-huh. uh, you know, so that this terrorist who was trying to, was killing the priest, you know, that he might escape this kind of violent death. But he said as he did this, he was filled with a peace and serenity in the face of this potential imminent death that made him utterly calm and utterly well, at peace, uh, in the knowledge uh, and love of God. Now that, to me, is really a person who's experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit, just as uh, in the way that Pope Francis has described here. How very profound, yes. Well, we've got several questions that have been submitted by our WJMJ listeners, but let's take a look at our Gospel lesson for today first, before we get to those questions. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, the 11th chapter, And after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts and what this gospel means. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Archbishop, your thoughts on this gospel? Well, of course, this is uh, the law of all prayer that Jesus uh, is teaching us the Our Father. And if we simply reflect prayerfully, thoughtfully on each of the verses of the Our Father, we will find there the key to all of uh, life, all of Christianity, all that Jesus asks us to do. That if we if we live this prayer, then we're living in a life in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. And um, so, and, and of course, then Jesus goes on uh, to talk about the um, the loving providence of of, uh, of God, using various examples, homey examples, to make his point. And he says, 
If you then, who are wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that's a real important line because, you know, we might say, oh, well, I want this, I want that, I want something else. But Jesus says that the supreme gift that God gives out of his goodness as a heavenly Father is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, the Holy Spirit uh, is the one who helps us to discern wisely and well all the things that are that confront us in life and all of the problems that confront us. So that's the greatest gift of all. Not winning the lotto or I don't know what else, yeah. but uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, but but he doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask for those other things, you know, for the the health of a child or uh, for some type or of for food, comfort or food or need, whatever yes. it is. Sure, it doesn't mean no, no. He, he doesn't say that 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 uh, is that God does not hear that prayer. But he's simply saying that the greatest gift is the Holy Spirit. This prayer we know traditionally, of course, as as the Our Father. Here, our translation says, "Do not subject us to the final test." And we usually say, lead us not into temptation. However, Pope Francis wants to change that. Can you discuss... Well, I don't know that he wants to change it. He said that we shouldn't misinterpret it. Uh And I think the Italian uh, bishops, you know, I don't know how hallowed the Italian translation is of the Our Father compared to the English one in in the respective languages. And that they're, uh, I think they're doing their liturgical translations. When we redid ours, our new missal, we decided not to change the translation. They may be at a point where they're redoing all their other liturgical texts and decided to do this one in a different way. But again, you still have to be faithful to the to what it says in the original Greek uh, in the gospel. So it'd be interesting to see uh, how they might do it. But on the other hand, remember the, the Pope, uh, he was explaining uh, more than anything something that, that, that does need explanation. You can't take what it says on face value as if it is God who leads us into temptation. That's not what that means. No, well, the translation we have before us is do not subject us to the final test. So that's a different way of putting it, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't remember Greek, my biblical Greek well enough to know exactly what the, what the words are. I don't remember either, and you were much better in Greek than I was. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> Okay. All right, let's move on to some questions that have been submitted, Archbishop, by our listeners. For instance, Kate from Torrington says, What impact will loving others have on us? Can you discuss what God promises to give to those who care for others? Well, Kate, in a way, love is its own reward, isn't it? I mean, we we are, I guess you could say, rewarded for love, but love is itself a a reward. Because God is saying, uh, Jesus has taught us that... uh, that the love that transforms us, that makes us a loving person, means that in the end we will be uh, submerged into an eternity of love uh, because that's the kind of person we chose to be with God's grace, to accept his grace, to love God above all things and our neighbors ourselves. Striving to do that, of course, not that we do it perfectly, but striving to do that. And, uh, you know, and I often say in today's modern age, we have to note that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that, you know, there's a form of self-love that is good, uh, th- that we're not supposed to despise ourselves or think that we're uh, somehow, what's that trite saying, God doesn't make junk? You know, we, yeah. we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are eminently lovable, but we can't have an egotistical kind of love. It has to be, but, but, but love your neighbor as yourself. 
Aaron from New Haven asks, I have been dealing with problems at both work and at home. I know that I should turn to God in times of trouble, but I must confess I am losing faith. I pray constantly but can't seem to get an answer to any of my questions or prayers. If God desires to give what is good, why do so many prayers seem to go unanswered? Well, because sometimes the will of God, remember in the garden on the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. In other words, he, he was filled with horror at what was going to happen to him. But he said, but not my will, thine be done. And on Good Friday, it seemed that Jesus' prayer was totally unanswered, right? It seemed like God the Father did not hear his prayer at all. But on Easter Sunday, we know why the crucifixion took place, and we know that the prayer was indeed answered, but, but from a perspective that was not at all evident on Holy Thursday night. And so too it is with us. Jesus says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So... We in this world, we do have our crosses, and we ask God to help us, to relieve us of them, to deliver us from evil things that happen. But God writes straight with crooked lines, and sometimes the grace he gives us is not by changing the suffering that we have, but by giving us the grace uh, to bear it, and more than just bear it, to be more conformed in faith, hope, and love to Christ in a way for the redemption of the world. You know, the church through the, by, by the cross believes in redemptive suffering, that somehow by uniting ourselves to Christ on the cross, our sufferings also contribute to the salvation of the world, to the great act that Christ did once for all, but nevertheless, in union with him, a suffering can have a redemptive purpose. Archbishop, let's look at a letter that the Connecticut Catholic bishops wrote recently. You composed this letter with all of the other bishops of Connecticut addressing the humanitarian crisis, which is the very politicized issue of immigration in the United States. It's a carefully worded five paragraphs that takes care to treat the matter very even-handedly. First, it speaks of the very moving and heartbreaking picture that we witnessed of a man and his baby who perished, drowned before they were even able to reach the United States. And this emphasizes, it seems, the pure humanity of this tragedy. People are desperate, aren't they? Well, it would certainly be the case, yes, that, that many people, you know, well, let's put it this way. Much of the United States population uh, was formed by people who were uh, desperately running away uh, from uh, a bad situation. Undoubtedly, your ancestors and mine left Europe because, uh, not because they were settled and happy there and doing well, but imagine making this frightening journey across the sea to a totally unknown place because they were facing uh, real Poverty, social, instance, economic, yeah. yes. And I mean, these were people who weren't trying to make more money, you know, that somehow they were, they were comfortable but wanted to do even more. These were people who had kind of subsistence living where things were very difficult or they were suffering terrible persecution. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised that that still... The reason for a lot of immigration in the world, and uh, I don't—I'm no expert in this—but clearly, south of our border, there are political, social situations that are very threatening and dangerous for a lot of people, including families. And some people are so stressed at this that they are willing to risk uh, uh, whatever it takes to come uh, to the United States. Well, you call for and you urge quote 
our government to act for a complete overhaul of existing immigration policies. Speaking of political gridlock, the letter says, and I quote again, both of our major parties have fallen woefully short of enacting immigration reform and of honoring the basic humanity of migrants and refugees. And it also asks that those responsible in government to take to undertake an examination of conscience as to what they have done and have failed to do when it comes to respect for human persons and the enactment of fair and balanced legislation. Is this not a call to drop all the political games and to craft a bona fide solution to this crisis? Well, yes, you know, this is, uh, it really is a moral issue of how we treat one another and how we respond to the the grave crises that people face in the world and how we do that individually and as a community and as a nation. So this is, you know, this is a, not just a p- politics. This, this is a, a, moral, a moral question. You know, again, this, we are, th- th- everybody shares some uh, blame in this. This is not one political party or another. I know that today in our country, there's such acrimonious debate and, and accusations between the parties. That is another matter uh, in its own. I'm not going to get into that. But I simply am going to say, as we did in our letter, that both political parties, even when they have been in, in, uh, responsible in power in the government, have, have not dealt with immigration reform. I can remember uh, way back and that the first uh, President Bush wanted immigration reform. And I don't know, probably presidents even before him may have done it, but I, but I particularly remember that. Uh, so we need to, to, to stop uh, accusing one another and start to do something to remedy the, the problem. Because, you know, the bishops have always said, too, that uh, this is a principle of morality, that a a nation has the right to control its borders, you know, and to have a rule of law. But on the other hand, we can't at the same time allow this huge problem to develop a humanitarian crisis, really, without dealing with it in a responsible way. The letter ends this way. You say, quote, We urge everyone to work and pray for a better way forward in addressing this humanitarian crisis. I think that's something that most everyone can agree is needed, don't you? Well, I would hope so. And, you know, it does require uh, people to make a commitment to finding a solution. Instead of criticizing one another, uh, they should be more attentive to resolving the issue, you know, at hand on the border. And working together. Yes. Well, here's news of, of something happening in Canada, Archbishop. In the Archdiocese of Toronto, a group there, the Dynamic Women Association of Ontario, is on a mission to remind women of the significance of their role as Catholic mothers by providing practical guidance to help them thrive in their busy lives through a ministry, catholicmomsgroup.com. That's the name of it, catholicmomsgroup.com. And the focus is on the way becoming a mom changes a woman's life. They say what women think, what they worry about, their prayers, and their need for companionship with other moms become tremendously focused on the new role of bringing children into the world and raising them. It's been successful in Toronto, so much so that part of the website is dedicated to helping women in other places start similar groups in their parishes. Archbishop, does this sound like something that we should be exploring in the Archdiocese of Hartford, for instance? Well, I should think so. This is the first time hearing of it, but if it is as you say, and it is uh, proving to be uh, successful, fruitful, and very much uh, in keeping with what the church believes and teaches about these matters, then I would say yes. Uh, but you know, I think when you say exploring in the archdiocese, absolutely. But I would hope that um, 
some of our listeners, uh, uh, some of the moms of our own diocese might uh, take an interest in, in looking this up and, more and possibly it. doing something about more grassroots. Because, you know, for an office of the archdiocese, uh, that's one thing. And certainly uh, this merits uh, looking into as something that we could maybe advertise more widely. But then it's up to uh, the people out there who would benefit or be interested to, to see what they can do. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing? Lord, in our world and in our country, and even in our homes and communities, we face many challenges, and sometimes we are not united in doing what is good and right and just. We pray for the grace to do so, to have a change of heart, so that all people and all individuals may live a blessed life in peace with other people, and especially in peace with God. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We always are enlightened by spending time with you, and uh, we wish you a very pleasant week. Thank you.